0: Hello and welcome to episode 41 of Double Reel, the monthly podcast magazine for the discerning film nerd. It's September 2023 and we're all wondering which of Putin or Kim Jong-un should be most embarrassed by their new friendship. We're here to get you through the month with a big helping of cinematic content for your waiting ears. My name's James Adamson and I'm a film nerd with a geeky love of film and obscure stories from the world of cinema and a lot of opinions. Joining me on the podcast is my co-host also called James Adamson. Welcome James.
1: Hello, thank you for that lovely introduction and it's good to be back.
0: We aim to provide you with the podcast equivalent of the monthly film magazines you used to buy in The News Agent, packed with a range of features from the world of film. We divide each monthly issue into three parts, which we release a week at a time to keep your feed fed through the month.
1: This is the first part of the episode, Double Reel Monthly. We'll look at recent film news, what new releases are heading our way, and review any new films we've seen since the last episode. We'll also discuss how we're getting on with the film-related resolutions we made for 2023.
0: Next week, we'll deliver our regular features, Classics and Recommended, Hidden Gem, The One That Got Away, and the remake Hate Watch.
1: The following week, it'll be the big conversation where we talk about a topic from the world of film in more detail. We'll tell you more about that later, and there are more details about all of our features on our various social media channels.
0: If you want to check that out or comment on the podcast, you can find us on Twitter on at Double Real Film. There's also an Instagram account called Double Real Podcast, and a Double Real Podcast Facebook page for you to follow if you're that way inclined. You can also follow us on letterbox.com slash double reel, where we list all the films we've discussed on the podcast and much more besides. You can also find the Double Reel podcast on the new social media platforms Threads and Mastodon. If you like the podcast, we'd also be very grateful if you could leave a review on Apple, Spotify, or whichever platform you use, as it really helps us get the word out to the rest of the world.
1: Now it's time to dim the lights and take your seats for our latest Double Reel monthly. Hope you enjoy it.
0: Let's get into it. Double Real Monthly is the first part of the episode and gives you a regular digest of news, new releases and how we've been fitting in movie watching with our busy, exciting lives. In the next hour and a bit, you'll get a breakdown of what's going on in the world of film this month that will set you up for your own movie watching. As well as that, at the start of each year, we make some film-related New Year's resolutions, so we'll be discussing the goals we've set for ourselves in 2023. As always, our mission is to give you a great discussion about films and film-related stories that will inspire you to escape the confines of the algorithm and watch something you haven't seen or have been meaning to see for a better cinematic experience. Also, just to quickly mention our other podcasts which you might like to check out, The Adamson's Verses is where we step away from the world of film and talk about stories, news and anything else that's caught our attention. Our most recent episode, The Adamson's Versus AI, is out now. With that piece of self-promotion out of the way, let's look at some messages we receive from listeners. Frank reacted to our last Double Reel monthly, surprised he didn't review Sound of Freedom. Only kidding, don't give money to QAnon. Chucky, which I think is just an online username, uh, Equalizer3 is classic Denzel Washington, not as good as the first but better than the second, thought it showed more of how despicable organised crime is than the first one. John saw it too and said this is basically Denzel going all out John Wick on the Sicilian Mafia, enjoyed it but he's starting to show his age. Antonio says, I like the slow burn storytelling, which was unexpected in this type of film. A vast improvement on Equalizer 2. And we'll be talking about that later. We'll be talking about a new British film, Scrapper, later as well. And Lauren says, this was right up my alley. A much fresher way to tell stories about ordinary people. These aren't big events in the scheme of things, but they're big to the people involved. And I really felt that. Dom says, I did enjoy it, but you could go to any independent film festival, throw a rock and hit a dozen films like this. I'm not sure I entirely agree on on that last point. On our Cronenberg entry maps to the stars, Chris says, I like it, a good movie for Robert Pattinson to do this straight after the end of Twilight films to show he was capable of more. And Gary says, one of my favourite Cronenberg films, but then, then I like things like this more than his sci-fi horror fetish movies. Uh, and Dinah agrees. Uh, thanks for all your messages. Uh, now on with the pod. Um, first thing we always do on Double Room Monthly is have a quick look at news. This isn't up to the minute because we only obviously publish Double Room Monthly once a month, as the title suggests. Um, but uh, what what news has caught your eye lately, mate?
1: So, not so much film related. If it had been ten years ago, but Russell Brand's obviously in hot water, and he has been in some big films. That's right. Yeah, he did. He did recently. have. He did
0: have something of a film career at some point.
1: Um, yeah, he's been accused of historical um, sexual assault uh, dating from two thousand and three to two thousand and thirteen. I think it was. Yeah. Um, he's obviously come out and denied it. Um, but it's it's not looking good for uh old Russell, is it? Um, I think it's important to say at this time that the people bringing these forward have the right to bring this forward, and Russell Brand has a right to kind of have his day, either defending himself publicly or in court. But I think the response to it on both sides has been somewhat disgusting. Um, I think people haven't learned from the Me Too movement and just dismissing, um women bringing these cases forward just from the off. And on the flip side, I don't think people have learned from things like Hugh Edwards, who hadn't actually done anything wrong, and now he, his life has been somewhat ruined, well, completely ruined by um, media jumping to the gun. So I think... Yeah, the, 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 wait, the
0: court to be tried and found guilty in is, is the court of law, not the court yeah. of public opinion, right?
1: And if he is found guilty and all the evidence comes to light and there is evidence of text, text messages, emails receipts for certain things and stuff like that and he is found guilty through a court of his peers, then absolutely he's a scumbag, he's a rat bastard. If it turns out to be false, then you know, he's had his day. Yeah, his
0: he yeah, himself. he needs it he needs an apology. Uh, yeah. I mean it's it's funny enough, I was I was uh was watching the film that came out last year. I reviewed it on the pod when I went to see it at the cinema and uh just watched it on TV on Friday or Saturday night. Uh she said which was about the journalist breaking the Harvey Weinstein story and it was sort of funny coincidence that, that, that you know we watched that just when this is happening because obviously when someone is rich and powerful and has really good lawyers and has got injunctions out or it's suspected they've had injunctions out preventing anything being discussed it's entirely understandable that investigative journalists spend like a long time working on the story and then break the story very publicly and there's always criticism like, oh, well, he's going to get ripped apart now. So, well, it might have been that this would be the only way for the story to come to light, yeah? Uh, and obviously, like you say, now that that's happened, this needs to be dealt with in court, right? This shouldn't become like a case of, you know, now that it, now he's been accused of something in the media, that that's when you have consequences. There should be a court case, and then there are consequences, you know? Um, yeah, it's disappointing, obviously, because, you know, you watch a film like she said, and you talk about afterwards, and you just think... You know, part of the problem is these allegations against Harvey Weinstein went back 30 years. Let's hope it's the last time that it takes so long for, you know, the allegations to come to light because it's really hard to to get a case dealt with for a rich guy, you know. And unfortunately, you've, we've got exactly the same thing happening again. It feels like no one's learned any lessons, like you said, you know. This has got an added dimension to it that because Russell Brand has, has become a... YouTube conspiracy theorist playing on covid and and you know some of the, the alt right stuff about ukraine this is an added dimension that there are people defending him solely because he's come out and said this is the mainstream media and it's become that tribal online bullshit um it's all just very depressing the best thing for it would have been for none of this to have happened you know uh but yeah it's um that's going to dominate the news for a while isn't it
1: yeah it's it's gonna be well it'll probably die down over the next few days and if there's any criminal charges and um, a court case then it'll obviously come back again. But it's, it's a bit of a, a downer to start with, but I think it's yeah it's right to bring it up.
0: I mean what what also happens often is that the news the, the news outlet with the stories, they never get they never send everything out at one go. They usually follow up, they have more information they follow up with, so we'll see what happens on that. Um in more sort of obviously film related news, well directly film related news, um This has been happening for a while, but it sort of came to light, and you sort of you kind of noted it a little bit at the end of our last pod that we recorded together. But Bradley Cooper's got some blowback for his um, playing Leonard Bernstein with a big fake nose. Yeah,
1: yeah, I saw that.
0: Um, It's it's opened up a bit of a debate about something that's called Jew face, like you know, and it's like if you if you need someone with obvious Jewish features and obvious Jewish stylings to, to play an obviously Jewish character, why didn't you get an obviously Jewish actor? Yeah. Um, and I'm not sure how entirely how I feel about that. I mean, I get it. I mean, David Badil, the British comedian has written some comments about that Maureen Lipman who's is an actress who everyone my age knows made a comment about this saying, you know, you wouldn't let any old person play a black person. Um, Jewish people have a specific experience why aren't Jewish people hired you know to play those roles, and and it, it's a long debate which I don't want to get too heavily into but I think that the the best example of it I don't know what the answer definitely is because on the one hand yeah there are probably are some sp- specific aspects of the Jewish experience which I don't know anything about um on the other hand do we want actors to be pigeonholed you know this actor is Jewish here is a list of Jewish characters you can play and that's it do you know what I mean um, yeah, I think, but an interesting, an interesting you know example of how someone's got this right, and there have been very few complaints is Oppenheimer, because Oppenheimer was Jewish, but it wasn't you know it's where he was from, it formed parts of his opinions, but there were so many other aspects to Oppenheimer, the science, his personal relationships, his own kind of personal struggles, and I don't think anyone's really battered an eyelid about Killian um, Murphy, Murphy playing him, even though he's not Jewish. On, on the other hand, David Crumholz playing his like best friend is Jewish. His character has more kind of obvious... he's 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 more overtly Jewish in the sense that he very much you know is observant of all the customs and everything else. And David Crumholz pl- is Jewish and plays him beautifully and probably plays him better than a non-Jewish actor could have done. It feels like Nolan has got the balance fairly fairly right there.
1: Well, I think my comment on it would be is that Lena Bernstein obviously had. An important experience as a Jew in Jewish political issues, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So Oppenheimer was obviously Jewish, but he's not remembered specifically for being Jewish. His name is Jewish, and he's descended from Jewish people. But his story is he made the atomic bomb to end the war. Mm-hmm. Whereas Leonard Bernstein was involved in, you know, um, you know what's the, he did a concert cause called, called H- Hatikva. Mm-hmm. At Mount Scopus in 1967, after the Arab-Israeli War, that's mm-hmm. obviously a massive thing for a Jewish person to be involved in. Mm-hmm. Now, personally, I don't. I wouldn't have found it an issue with Bradley Cooper playing Leonard Bernstein because it's a big star. It will be a popular film, and it will, you know, it'll draw a lot of eyes to a story about a Jewish person and a Jewish story that many people wouldn't know about. Yeah. And I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing, getting a, a big star in that. What I do think is an issue is putting a prosthetic nose on Bradley Cooper. I would have had no issue with him playing Leonard Bernstein if mm-hmm. they just did his hair to look like Leonard Bernstein and just left his nose the way it was, maybe giving him some contact lenses if they had different eye colour. But it's the fact that they've gone out of their way to... Add to an old Jer- a Jewish a Jewish stereotype. Yeah, sorry. yeah, yeah. I think
0: yeah that's you're the issue, right. Yeah, it I mean, would've,
1: it would have passed under the radar if it had just been. Look at this new photo of Bradley Cooper with his um his co-star playing um his wife mm-hmm. Felicia. Nobody would have given a shit. But mm-hmm. it's the fact that they've played up on a Jewish stereotype. And if it, you know? and if
0: it was any kind of physical feature other than the nose, it wouldn't have drawn as much comment either. Because that the, the not not that it look it's 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 one of these weird conversations where. I don't give a shit about this. And we're only talking about this because arseholes give a shit about this. But the whole Jewish nose thing has been like a really nasty stereotype over the years. It is not a surprise that that this turns out to be sensitive, right? Yeah, um, yeah, it is what it is. And, and you know, right? Look, I, I think Bradley Cooper is really, really good, okay? I've liked a lot of the stuff that he's done. It does feel a little bit like awards chasing as well, doesn't it? Look how much I changed my appearance for this role kind of thing.
1: Yeah, but you can change your appearance without putting prosthetics on. To, in, Spot on, but and you know what? To but, but you know
0: what the Oscars rewards? What did Gary Oldman win his best actor Oscar for? The one yeah, where he's not sh- looking like Gary Oldman. The, the, one. <laughs> the, the one where he was. The thing is, Gary Oldman has done all kinds of films where I, I don't know how much makeup he wore for Harry Truman. I don't know how much makeup he wore to, to play Lee Harvey Oswald, uh, Sid Vicious, Joe Orton, because he's really brilliant at making himself look like his character without necessarily covering himself with kind of, you know, globs of, of of plasticky makeup. Do you know what I mean? But what does Oscar give you the award for? The one where you, you know, were practically wearing a skin balaclava, you know? It's just, that's what, you know, a fat suit and, and do you know what I mean? So it does feel a little bit like part of this is that Bradley Cooper knows that if he didn't put the nose on, his acting wouldn't have been given as much credit in award season, you know? <laughs>
1: Yeah, and I think what I what I will say on the other side of things is that I really, really, really hate the argument that you should only ever get people of a certain religion um, to play a certain role. I think there is a line, and I think we've discussed in the past, I think the line is when uh, Eddie Redmayne pretended he had motor neuron disease, that's where you cross line where you pretend that you have a disability, I think that's completely inappropriate, and obviously blackface, mm-hmm. but if we're going to be, like, pedantic, like, was every single person in Schindler's List Jewish? Probably not, no. Um, no. Was, was every single person in, uh, you know, give give me another film, is every single person in this Maestro film are the Jewish? No. Mm-hmm. I think that that is fucking stupid. I think you're going to take away from acting if you just, you kind of water it down to, casting is just, you should play a person based on... Your religion, if that makes sense, like yeah, for that doesn't really make a difference when it comes down to religion. You can be a black person, you can be Jewish, you can be a white person, you can be Asian, you can be all sorts, and you can be Jewish. There are very few things where you shouldn't really cross that line, and it really, really fucks me off when you say you shouldn't play this person because you're not of that. Like Tom Hanks, you know, didn't have HIV or AIDS. Mm-hmm. Tom Hanks. Cross the line with Forrest Gump. I know the speech in Tropic Thunder, but I think we do, we've kind of agreed that the line is when you start playing people with disability, but Tom Hanks wasn't a fucking World War II captain. Yeah. But he, he was still in superpower, and I think it's fucking stupid for people to come out and say, we should only cast people like this, we should only cast people like that. I think if it lends itself to the story, I think it would be very odd if we did a film about, you know, the Crusades, and we got people that, you know, if we got Margot Robbie to play, you know, a sultan or a head of a caliphate, I think that would be a bit fucking weird and jarring because it wouldn't make sense, but it's, when it's obvious that someone, when it comes to skin colour, should be playing that, I think this fucking outcry, it pisses me off. I think there's another one that's a grey area, and that's when it comes down to trans actors. Mm -hmm. That's the one where I've yet to kind of do enough kind of discussion and thought and see where I kind of full it doesn't fucking matter because I'm just some guy but the, there is a sort there is a certain th- gray part where people go should you be playing someone like when Eddie Redman played someone in the Danish girl he kind of went back and said yeah I probably shouldn't have played a trans person there so yeah. for that I find it quite difficult and I think it's it's good that we're having more trans people and I think these roles probably should be going to them because they can draw that it's hard. It feels like I'm contradicting myself because no. people are saying, "Well, oh, Bradley Cooper's not Jewish. How can he draw from his own experiences?" But at the same time, I think it's good for trans people to get these kind of roles because they can harness that. It's harder. I feel like I'm saying yeah. like a bit no, no, no. There. The
0: thing is, look. The thing is, if you <laughs> the the issue, the issue, part of the issue for trans actors is there are very few roles for them. So yeah. you can imagine them pissed off when a high profile trans character comes on screen and they're not in contention to play that part. Yeah. And the and, and it would be similar with like a uh, you know if you if you had a bunch of Jewish actors talking about what part they love to play and there's like a great part from the stage or like oh an ultimate God that's that's the most, biggest most famous Jewish person ever who absolutely represents a whole load of things about everything that is to be Jewish you know fiddler on the roof do you know what I mean it's like if it, that's the part I want to play and then when no Jewish people are in contention to play that big Jewish character you could understand them being pissed off that do, do you know what I mean I think the 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 point that David Bedill was making was 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 actually quite nuanced which was saying it's almost like people forget that being Jewish is a thing because it's not a color thing they say anyone can play that part and I think he was kind of making a point that says do you know what I mean if 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 there are specific characteristics to being black and it's ridiculous that someone who's not black would play that character. Why does people not consider Jewish characters to be anything like that at all? And it was quite a nuanced point, which is why I think the whole Oppenheimer Crum, um, uh, and David Krumholz thing is, it, you know, it illustrates that. In my humble opinion, the outcry is the usual reductive social media shit. Do you know what I mean? And I think with 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 Bradley Cooper, the main thing is the nose. But the secondary point is, like you say, Leonard Bernstein did a couple of things which are absolutely specific to being Jewish. Do you know what I mean? There's a similar one that came about. Do you remember when um, Zoe Saldana played Nina Simone? Yes. And people went, hold on, Zoe Saldana is this little kind of waif-like creature, uh, and she's like very, very light-skinned. And the whole light, light-skinned, dark-skinned thing is quite a thing in... in for black people, because often black darker skinned black people feel like they get excluded. It's like only Halle Berry can be a model. Do you know what I mean? Because she's got lighter skin, and having someone who's who's you know has basically the opposite of Nina Simone in that sense playing Nina Simone is a bit is a bit iffy. And then and then to play the part, she had to brown up, she had to darken her skin, and put on a and 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 put on a prosthetic nose so that her nose was wider because Nina Simone had quite you know, more obviously like original African features, and she was kind of excluded and treated a certain way because of that. And they kind of went, what the fuck did Zoe Saldana think she was doing playing that character when that was such a big part of who she was? And I think the operating statement is, it was such a big part of who she was. Do you know what I mean? Which is why Oppenheimer's not a thing, but maybe Leonard Bernstein is. Do you see what I mean? But that's applying common sense to each given given role, right?
1: Yeah, I think... I think it depends on the role, and I think, like you said before, there are certain areas that it's prob it's better, definitely, for black people to play black roles, and you know, same way you wouldn't want Matt Damon playing, you know, Mao Zedong. You know what I mean? That would be, it's, yeah, yeah. But like, it it's it's strange how there's outcry to certain roles, and there's not outcry to other roles. Like, if we're applying the same logic to, you know. People with specifics, there's there's naturally and rightly so, outcry to Nina Simone playing, be, sorry, being played by Zoe Saldana, but there was no outcry to Rami Malek playing um, Freddie Mercury, or not certainly not as loud. Like Rami Malek is Egyptian. Freddie Mercury was born to Indian parents, Parsi Indian parents. That, that's not the same ethnicity. Mm-hmm. That's two different parts of the world. It's, yeah, and uh, there's... The Arab, that's, this... Rami Malek is Arab, and Freddie Mercury's family were Indian. So, yeah. it, you know, it's I find it absurd that, People have outcry to someone playing Nina Simone that shouldn't be playing Nina Simone, but don't have any outcry to someone playing Freddie Mercury. I think it's stupid. And I think it comes down to the, the the quantity of that characteristic of that certain individual and how important it was in their life. So nobody really gave a shit that Freddie Mercury was descended from Indians, but he was,
0: was very hard to pin down. You just need someone who looks like him. Well, it would have been interesting if a if a white guy had played him, which which had been <clears throat> considered at some points. I mean, this is going to come up when Gal Gadot plays Cleopatra. Um, yeah. I think the challenge is going to be that, with the absolute greatest respect to Gal Gadot, she's not of like the caliber of a um, you know, have she's how do I put this in a nice way she's not a massive heavyweight actress I think she's really good and she's a proper action star and all those sorts of things but I wouldn't I wouldn't ask her to be the the leader in an Ibsen play do you know what I mean um but people have asked this question oh but Cleopatra you know how can she play Cleopatra and so because well, she's kind of from the Middle East and Elizabeth was from the, uh, Cleopatra was from the Middle East and was probably Macedonian. It's not that big a deal, but that's going to come up. There's going to be this whole discussion, you know, was Cleopatra black and should she be played by a black actress? And it's so hard to do. Um, I think, look, none of this is solved by Twitter outcry. And I think Bradley Cooper comes down to probably, like, I think you probably put, put your finger in, mate. He'd probably have got away with it, but for the nose, right?
1: Yeah, it was the added part of adding that prosthetic that was completely yeah. unnecessary.
0: Yeah. Any other any other news caught your eye?
1: Uh not really, no.
0: Um couple of things. It's this is all probably one story actually, but because of the the writing and acting strikes, Dune has been delayed to March twenty twenty four. Okay. It was going to be coming out in like November time. But the problem is because actors when they're on strike they can't promote a new film they've got coming out for the studio they can only promote a film if it's for like like an independent studio that isn't part of the dispute or they've got some sort of interim agreement which is why for example adam driver can promote the ferrari film because it's an independently financed film that has an interim agreement in place with actors to give them a fair deal um What that means is that none of the actors involved in Dune, Timothee Chalamet, uh, Josh Brolin, Rebecca Ferguson, none of them can actually promote the film. They can't turn up on the red carpet. They can't go on Graham Norton promoting the movie. And Dune's like, I would much rather this film came out when we've got a chance to really promote it strongly, fully market it. Um, So that's been delayed back to March 2024, and they're hoping that the strike's going to be over by then. There's obviously rumours are swirling around and like speculation that this is going to happen to a number of other films. Um, while it's not been definitely announced or anything, uh, there are rumours that the same fault uh, fate could befall um, Ridley Scott's Napoleon, which is coming out at the end of November. And there is this worry that without promotion, it could hurt the film's chances. People are less sure about this one because it's Apple and Apple are like not as dependent on or committed to like a big box office like you know take uh, as you know non-streaming people so it's questionable i mean part of me the coward in me uh sort of hopes that it is delayed because i've got this feeling that like this is not the best time for ridley scott to have his possible last shot for best director yeah if it comes out next year i, I you know oppenheimer's gone barbie's gone all of these other things that, you know, Killers of the Flower Moon is gone and people can look at Ridley Scott doing his absolute kind of mastery with a historical costume drama and say, here you go. We're sorry we didn't give you this for Blade Runner, mate. It, you know, and well done on this one as well. Whereas he could get lost in the mix on on this one. Um, yeah, I think you're right. Part of me says, no, fuck it. Let's see it. Come on, Ridley. N- knock them all down. Get your Oscar, you know. Um, not that that's the most important thing. I mean, he's made the films that deserve the, the awards. It doesn't kind of it's like Kubrick never won best director, that doesn't make him any less of a great director. But you know you know what I mean. You, you know you know why as a like a fan of a director you have that sort of feeling. We'll just to have to honest, see.
1: Like, without getting into the 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 kind of ins and outs of it too much, do you not think that actors promoting a film isn't that important nowadays? Like, for example, the adverts the adverts before the films in a cinema, tweets, Facebook posts, Instagram posts, YouTube ads, all that kind of thing. I think that is where I would consume most of the kind of ads for for the films that I want to see nowadays. It, yeah, really, it's it's gonna
0: depend. I'd, it's gonna depend on how how, how star dependent a given film is. They're not all they're not all being delayed. So I think I think the answer is it depends. I think you're right on some things, like a Marvel film. I think a Marvel film would be able to come out even if the actors weren't promoting it.
1: Like I don't yeah, I don't watch live TV. So for me, I'm not gonna be watching, you know, Channel Four and then or BBC News and then see, oh, Caelan Murphy's been promoting Oppenheimer. I knew Oppenheimer was coming out ages ago. I think it's more of you know I think the film companies can just pay to promote their tweets. And they're, what, are they still called tweets now that Elon Musk has been a bit of a fucking... Oh, I don't on? know. I don't know. I don't think. I again? don't
0: think he wants them to be called tweets anymore.
1: What does he want them to be called?
0: Oh, I don't know. But he can stick it up his ass. He supports Russell Brand, so fuck him.
1: <laughs> Wait.
0: <laughs> yeah. No. I mean, it's it. It is going to depend. Some people are pressing on regardless, for exactly the reasons you say. Some, some films are looking at the way Barbie did so well with its promotion and the excellent use of the star because the star can be at the parties, you know, you know, be at the events. You know, when they turned an actual house in Malibu into Barbie's Malibu Beach House and put, you know, Ryan Gosling and Margot Robbie there, that actually had a big effect because it's not just the fact that they, they did that. It was then that people went, wow. Look at the way they're promoting Barbie. They're really doing some interesting things. Do you know what I mean? It's kind of... Yeah. Different films are going to make different decisions on this, put it that way. For example, David Fincher's The Killer is completely unaffected by this. They're thinking, fuck it. Um, we're going out. Killers of the Flower Moon, to the best of my knowledge, is definitely going out. So different people are um, you know, making different decisions on it. So what we'll just have to see. The strike... The writers and, and, and actors strikes are continuing. People are starting to feel the pinch. Uh, that some of the studios are getting pissed off. They feel like they've offered a good settlement now, like a like a resolution settlement. But the, the strikers are holding out for more. Um, there are some people who are being, you know, really uh, impacted by this. You know, not not all actors are on a lot of money. Otherwise, there wouldn't be a strike. Uh, so the longer they strike, the harder it gets. You know, we come from a family of miners. So we know what that's. We know what that's like. Um, You hope for some sort of resolution. And the news that I heard that the studio had actually made an offer that actually improved on the previous position is hopeful. Maybe they can make another offer and resolve this because it it really needs to get done. So fingers crossed. But it is dragging on at the moment. Yeah. And what it's nice to to close, however, or finish the news section on some good news. Um, A diversity report has come out. Which indicates that independent film is making progress towards gender parity. Um, looking at it, it's um, uh, the the uh, this is a ratio rather than a percent, so I've got to get my head around it. Um, the The number of Independent films directed by women versus men is now seven to ten. So for every ten films directed by a man, independent films directed by a man, seven films are directed by women. So they're actually approaching 50-50 there. Um, So they're just making good progress. And that's improving across key positions. Directors, writers, producers, editors, cinematographers, women are working more... Uh, you know, in those roles than ever, you know, there are more women cinematographers and more women uh, editors and, you know, other sort of, you know, technical roles that, you know, the ones you don't, you know, always understand completely, you know, um, as opposed to just, you know, being hairdressers and costume designers, they're actually getting their due in, in a range of, of roles. So mainstream cinema could could follow after that, if that's, uh, if you know, it, with any luck, but there's some good news. And that's just, that's not quotas, people have just said, you know, people have started to break through the glass ceiling. And the more people do it, the more, you you know, you have an image in your mind of what a film director is. Yeah. And if everyone, and it doesn't matter if you or I think that way, because I've always been, you know, I didn't know Point Break was even directed by a woman. I just thought that looks cool. And it turns out it was directed by a woman. Great. What really needs to happen is the people making those decisions don't only ever see a man in their head when they're picturing who's going to be the director of the next movie. And that sort of that sort of change uh, is is a good sign. A little way to go, but a good sign. So, not you know not all bad news this uh, this month. Let's say.
1: Yeah, I think that's um, I think that's a good thing. And I think I think from a consumer's perspective, we don't care who directs the film, like whether they're a man or a woman or whatever they identify as. It's it's not up to us, but it's the like you say, it's the people making the decisions. You know, the people on the board who tend to be older, you know, white men. So yeah, 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 it's down to them giving those opportunities and making sure that people that make those decisions are also, you know, diverse as well. Because then, you know, they're more likely to have a wider scope or more open to anyone directing a film. Because for me, I don't give a shit. If I see the, the trailer for the new Napoleon film, obviously it helps that Ridley Scott's directing it from my perspective because I'm a fan of Ridley Scott. But this Napoleon film had Joaquin Phoenix... Um, playing Napoleon, and it was directed by Catherine Bigelow, I would have gone, oh cool! I'm gonna, yeah. go, I'm gonna go watch that because Joaquin Phoenix is playing Napoleon In the same way that I know this is a bad example because we don't think Gal Gadot is going to be good as Cleopatra. But say they casted uh, Cleopatra perfectly, and you saw oh they're doing a Cleopatra film, and it was directed by a woman. I wouldn't care. You know, it's, yeah, yeah. Oh, I'm excited to see that story. We should be, we are there to see the story, not the, not really there. For the person directing it, obviously yeah. it helps when there's a big name attached to it, and I think, you know, for example, Greta Gerwig going forward, you know, she's going to have a lot of attention on herself because of yeah, the yeah. success of Barbie and uh, her, and her and her that's
0: the thing. I mean, she's she's followed a good trajectory, right? She's made some independent films that that gained her some attention, and I went, oh no, she's she's good here, Ladybird, that's good, well done. That got her the chance to do Little Women, which was a bit more traditional than her sort of indie mumblecore films that she did, because it's a costume drama based on a famous novel. But because she did a good job on that, everyone's like, oh, Greta Gerwig making a bit of a name for herself. And obviously Barbie was part of the draw here, for you know, or a big part of the draw for that big movie, but it's the same with Christopher Nolan. I mean, I'd seen some Nolan films and liked them, right? I'd seen Insomnia, and then Batman Begins, and oh, this, this is really good, right? But then when he does The Dark Knight and just fucking changes the game, it becomes, oh right, what's Christopher Nolan doing next? And now you can add a couple of women's names to that list, right? And that's just that's just cool. Because for me, why would you want the same old names every time? Because the same old names means the same old films.
1: Yeah, no, I, I agree. So cool. It's um, it's it's great. good
0: it's good news and you know, long may it continue because I assume that they've all, you know, Given how hard everyone has to work in the film industry, right? Um I assume they've all had to work very hard to, to get where they've got to. And you know, if that means more good films, that's that's all we're here for, right?
1: Exactly.
0: The next thing we always talk about is new releases. Uh, the new films coming out um, after the the date that this uh, episode launches, which will be the 25th of September, until the date the next episode launches, the 25th of October. What films are coming out? We don't mention all of them. We just mention the ones that are catching our eye. But what new releases um, have, have you seen that you're interested in, in talking about? It's, mate?
1: it's been a little bit thrown off with... Um... The kind of delays, but there's a a few coming out. There's a few uh, interesting ones that I didn't expect them to ever make films of. For example, the uh, Five Nights at Freddy's. What's all that about? So, you probably don't know about this, but it was a really popular game back in the day where the basic concept is you play the security guard at an arcade at night time and you sit in a, a CCTV room hmm and it's like it's sort of like you know chuck e cheese they have those big animatronic dolls yeah but they're all spooky and they're they're trying to kill you and <laughs> fun all you right they have a certain amount of electricity and battery power so you've got to scan the cameras and make sure that the teddy bears aren't moving closer and closer to the CCTV room and you can lock the doors but you have like 10 hours of a shift mm-hmm. the, ga- the the game doesn't last 10 hours but and you don't have 10 hours worth of you know, electricity and battery life to keep the door shut. So it's about kind of timing it right and make sure that the, the big scary animatronic dolls don't come and kill you. So that's been made into a film. It was absolutely huge. And um, the same way that like slender was a, a big, huge thing. Yeah. Um, it's got Josh Hutcherson playing the role. It seems like he, they've kind of tried to establish a backstory to the character. Yeah. Um, he's like, he seems like a kind of, it seems like a single dad, a young dad with, um, a daughter to provide for and he's kind of taking this job. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it's it'll probably be it won't be an Oscar winner. It'll be. Uh, it
0: sounds like a lot of fun. Is the iron still hot for it? I mean, is this a, is this a thing that was like popular ten years ago and everyone's forgotten, or is it is it still is it still warm enough that people are gonna gonna turn out?
1: Interesting that you asked that. I never gave a shit about it. The game, uh, not into horror, um, but it was big. You would see it everywhere on YouTube more than anything. Like you know, if you followed any of those like gamers that played like did like let's play this game. Yeah, or let, let's see what game.
0: happens when I play this game or react reaction um, videos and stuff, yeah.
1: So yeah, for them, I imagine it'll be uh maybe a bit of a throwback. I don't think it'll make a lot of money, but uh yeah. That that'll be interesting to see how that plays out. There's uh, Expendables four, don't give a shit. Um there is Saw 10 Again, don't give a shit. Is this yeah? Is this twenty fifth to the twenty fifth?
0: Uh, yeah, twenty fifth September to twenty fifth of October.
1: Um, there's a few here that I don't even recognise, like the wonderful story of Henry Sugar. Do you know anything about that?
0: Yeah, so that is a short-ish film. I think it's only like fifty minutes long. It's directed by Wes Anderson, so you're you're out already. Um, and this is based on a Roald Dahl story. Now, I guess he's interested in that because he's already done one Roald Dahl adaptation, The Fantastic Mr. Fox. Now, when I was a kid, when I was at primary school, it was the, let's give the kids something to read that they'll quite like and get them into reading. So we got all the Roald Dahls. We were absolutely kind of crammed full of Roald Dahl stories. Danny, the Champion of the World, um, uh, you know, the Twits, Matilda, uh, the Witches, all of that. And... Uh, wonderful story of henry sugar is one of those i don't really remember what it's about but it's it's notable because wes anderson's come out of this quite soon after his last film and it's it's short the film's only 50 minutes long cuz it wasn't like a long novel or anything it was a short story so people have kind of gone oh that's quirky it's a short film you know it's probably going to be shown at festivals and then maybe be on because I, I, I'm, I'm not paying full price for a half-length film, right? So I, I guess it's going to be on festivals, on bills, or whatever. Um, so that's that. But it, it is it is slightly noteworthy, put it that way.
1: Okay. Um, I'm not watching it.
0: No. <laughs> me, me either, probably, because,
1: you know. Um, there's another Exorcist film coming out with Ellen Burstyn and Leslie Odom Jr. Mm-hmm. don't really give a shit. There's a few that I didn't know even were coming out. Ooh, The Taylor Swift, The Eater's Tour. That'll be good. Um, Is
0: that like a concert film kind of yeah, thing?
1: fuck that. Um, Killers of the Flower Moon. Um,
0: yeah, that's kind of one of the big ones, isn't it? October the 20th.
1: And then after that. Oh, Five Nights at Freddy's comes out on October 27th. I apologise.
0: No, no, no. It's near enough. It's near enough. Well,
1: I'm sure we'll discuss it on the next one. But... Um, <laughs> Yeah, there's a few that I, I like the the sound of those uh, old dads with Bill Burr and Bobby Cannavale. Mm-hmm. Um, I like Bill Burr. I don't I don't know what it's about. It's not giving me a synopsis here. I'm just going genuinely off the title and the actors that are in these the release date. But I like Bill Burr. I find him very funny. Pain Hustlers. Emily Blunt and Chris Hebb- uh, Evans. Do you know anything about that?
0: No, no. First off, the thing is right. The with everything. <coughs> pardon me. With everything happening in the strike, like the film dates get all sort of like. like jerked around I mean for example I've been to see at least one film this you know one or two films th- this year where we talked about what was coming up in the next month that wasn't on the list because when you look on the website it's it's weeks away and then they suddenly bring it forward or they or or, or it wasn't on the list because it didn't have a date and then it suddenly gets a date at quite short notice so it's kind of and it's even more up in the air now because of the strike. So. But, these dates are kind of, these films are kind of coming at you with, you know, it's a bit. Of, some of them are coming at you without warning at the moment, you know. Yeah. Ones that caught my eye uh, 28th of September, The Creator. Uh, which on the plus side stars John David Washington. It's apocalyptic sci fi humans versus AI. Supporting cast of Alison Janney, Ken Watanabe, Gemma Chan, and Ralph Ineson. Uh The downside is it's directed by Gareth Edwards, who I don't really rate. Is he
1: that the Godzilla?
0: And Rogue One. I think Rogue Rogue One's fine, right? But I do think it's a little bit overrated um, and God, Godzilla 2014 was, I didn't think that was very good at all it, I, I don't, I think he's a bit of a leaden director He. My feeling is that this is going to be an interesting idea, which if he directs it the way he directed Godzilla it's just going to be a real kind of slogged watch um, and it's co-written by Chris White so I don't really rate either so I'm kind of waiting for the reviews on that because it's the subject matter is right up my street. So if the reviews say, oh, he smashed it, this is really brilliant, I, w- I might risk it. Do you know what I mean?
1: Yeah, it will be.
0: Mm, yeah. October the 6th, Golda, biopic of Golda, my ear. Um, it's interesting, this is also a hot button topic because they've cast Helen Mirren uh, uh, as as a like a, a Jewish character who helped set up the state of Israel. So they did feel like this was a bit of an emblematic Jewish character. And they've... Given her a lot of prosthetics to make her look more like a Jewish person. So it's. There's been more discussion of casting Helen Mirren than they have about the subject of the film. And given it's about the setting up the state of Israel and at least two wars involving, like, uh, Israel and Arab nations, you'd have thought that would be the controversy. Um, yeah. But, you know. It's. Mm. It'd be in, I mean, the, the, the interesting thing is actually going to be how she how they portray Golda Meir and the politics and the events of the time. Um, it's The only thing I'd like to say about Golda Meir is if she's alive today, she'd be a fucking enormous improvement on Benjamin Netanyahu, but that's another story. Um, Blackberry comes out next month as well, in October. It's a, the latest film about a product, which is very much in the new trend Fuck in Hollywood. Fuck off. It's supposed to be quite funny, and it's got Jay Baruchel and Glenn Howerton from "It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia" in it. Um, see, I thought this has already come out, but that's because it came out at some festivals and a couple of film podcasts I listened to reviewed it because it had been at the festivals. It's supposed to be quite good, but it, it does feel a little bit like, it, are, are they gonna? Are we gonna get a um, uh, a film about the invention of the Walkman? Are we gonna get a film about like Tamagotchis? You know, it's just on and on and on. Yeah, um, another like one, that. The Great Escaper, which I only mentioned it because it's Michael Caine in a leading role. Don't do that very often. And Glenda Jackson in what I think was her last role before she died. It's about an elderly war veteran who breaks out of his care home to attend the D-Day 70th anniversary celebrations. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, we'll see. It's the sort of thing I'd probably wait and watch on telly, but it's for, for those older people Cinema goers who like to go out to the cinema, who go and watch things like that, 80 for Brady, the book club and um, Best Exotic Marigold Hotel, it feels like it's aimed at that audience. You know, they like, you know, they'll go and see it at 11 o'clock and get a cup of tea, uh, you know, and a biscuit. Um, I'm trying not to sound patronising, it's, you know, it's that older audience, it's the grey pound, you know. And probably notable, this is the last one I've got on my list, because you already mentioned Killers of the Flower Moon, The Big Scorsese, uh, you know, Leo and De Niro together. But the other one that's coming out, October the 13th, Paw Patrol, The Mighty Movie. Uh... Now, this is only really notable, is that it's likely to be your little brother's first ever trip to the cinema. Uh... The way I look at it is that if he has got the attention span to watch films now, we'll find out, that'll be great, and we can start taking him to see some good stuff. And if he gets bored and wants to leave after 20 minutes, I really don't mind. (laughs) This is the sort of thing with Paw Patrol. There is a big watershed here. Anyone who's not a a parent of small kids may not be aware of the Paw Patrol phenomenon. Anyone with small children, however, will have seen every episode of the TV show 8,000 times. Um, But yeah, that's Paw Patrol, the mighty movie. Yeah, good luck with that. (laughs) Thank you. Uh, any other new releases to discuss? No, don't think so. Very good. Yeah, I mean, it's funny enough, it's it's livened up a little bit because the summer hasn't been great, has it? There's only really Barbie Oppenheimer and Mission Impossible 7 to really talk about. So now that the blockbuster summer is over, you're getting a slightly more interesting range of films now. Yeah. Now, the next thing we cover in uh, Double Real Monthly is the fiendishly complicated penalty shootout film quiz. Um, we we do have a few uh, extra listeners now. Podbean is kind of pushing us a little bit wider. And if you haven't listened to us before, we'll just uh, summarize this very quickly. This is a film quiz. It's me against James. Uh, it's in the format of a football penalty shootout. So we answer a question each in order five in a row whoever's whoever has got more questions right after five is the winner um we have a tie break if we if we're still level after five uh, and the loser has to do a forfeit the forfeit being um uh watching a film that you definitely not going to like as punishment chosen by the other person i'm not doing very well on this um i've lost three of these we've had a few draws i've lost three james has lost none my last forfeit was to watch Diana the Musical, which, <laughs> fucking hell, man.
1: Uh, I forgot that existed.
0: I only, I uh, yeah, so is, this is, I have my sister to thank for this because she's already recommended this and you said, I'm going to make that your forfeit. <laughs> it's
1: right. wonderful. I'm so... You've got to give the people what they want. Fucking hell. They were being for blood.
0: And it's, it is such a weird thing. I mean, the first thing to say is that I, I watched it I watched it all the way through, right? But I, didn't
1: look, but I
0: didn't look directly at the screen more than a few minutes at a time for fear I might tear my own eyeballs out. It's the weirdest fucking thing because it's got stories about Princess Diana and Prince Charles. It's basically a lot of the subject matter of The Crown, but because it's a musical, you've got people in the chorus line behind Diana giving it the little sort of wiggly shoulders while they kind of sing the chorus. And it's just the
1: maddest fucking thing. It's surreal.
0: The only way I could get myself through it was like imagining ways that they could make it more entertaining. For example, rescore all the songs, uh, and have the music played by Megadeth. That would have been quite good. <laughs> Who could you have playing Charles and Diana to make it more entertaining? And I settled on Greg Davies and, um, Daisy Lee Cooper from, uh, uh, never mind the buzzcocks; that would be quite good. Jesus um, and I thought, what they could have done to make the, the 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 crash scene more interesting is if they choreographed it like that episode of Red Dwarf. Do you remember that episode of Red Dwarf where they're kind of? Um,
1: yep, yeah, I know that where the, they're all sat on the boxes. They're, they're, they're sat on the, the boxes. Squid.
0: Yeah, and they're pretending that they're in a car chase, and they're 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 in they're sitting on boxes pretending to be in a car. I reckon that would been a really good way to dramatise the uh, the the Paris um, tunnel incident.
1: <laughs> fucking hell. <man>. But
0: <clears throat> other than that, it's not a film I recommend anybody watching. Even, you know, sometimes people like to, oh, that's so bad, it's good. No, 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 no. This is so bad, it's torture. I really don't want to lose another fucking quiz.
1: <laughs> yeah, it, I think what's mental is that you can have films like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood that are dealing with the Manson's and the Sharon Tate models, and that is more sensitive and is dealt with more sensitively. That a film, a, a, sorry, a musical about Princess Diana's life. It is just, it's surreal. You cannot, I refuse to believe that I've actually watched that, and I have watched that, because I refuse to believe that that is a genuine thing, and not just some sort of acid trip that Netflix manages to fucking translate via your eyeballs. It's so fucking... The mental. bit
0: that really blew my mind, right, is that, for reasons best known to themselves... Um... Princess Diana's step-grandmother by marriage—I think they've got that right—is Barbara Cartland. Her dad's second wife um, was the daughter of Barbara Cartland, or something, which made sort of made Barbara Cartland sort of a relative of, of of Princess Diana. Now, this may not be a big thing for you, but anyone my age remembers Barbara Cartland as being she was the byword for kind of cheesy romance because she wrote like a thousand romance novels. I mean, she would just you know just rattle off the same old shit about like a young Anshinu falling in love with a Count it, write it in about a day and a half and publish it and I don't know who read this shit but she also looked She looked like a giant blancmange with like eyes drawn on it mm-hmm. and she, it's like, she was kind of a joke and it would be the sort of like Barbara Cartland would be like a spitting image puppet or she'd be like an impersonation that someone would do in the 80s and people would go what's the difference between Dame Barbara Carton and Dame, and Dame Edna Reveridge?" you know and, and this sort of thing right um and for the 21st century audience, you've got a lot of Barbara Cartland in the in the Princess Diana story to the point where they introduce I don't know if you did you manage did you watch all of Princess Diana the the musical
1: No oh, did I fuck did you see I the watched...
0: bit where, did you see the bit where they introduced James Hewitt?
1: Who the,
0: who the fuck's James Hewitt? He's the the bloke, the the, the ginger haired bloke that people used to oh, joke might be, dad, might be, might be Harry's dad. Yeah, James Hewitt. He's introduced to the musical with this kind of sexy, uh, grind, you know, grinding. Oh wow, what a man! Type song. Topless, just wearing a pair of kind of riding trousers, carried into the stage, and then for reasons best known to themselves, Dame Barbara Cartland starts grind dancing up against him. I just think, what the fuck am I watching?
1: That's that's the thing that if anyone is somehow possessed to watch this, is that it's not just, you hear they've made a Diana musical and you go, oh, for fuck's sake, you know, you think, oh, no. But you'd think they would try and do it in a way and it's just not a subject matter that you would make into a musical, if you get what I mean? Like, I'm trying to describe this in the best way possible, but you know that the way they made Hamilton, they made that and they told the story of Hamilton with songs and there's some points of humor but there's obviously some tragic moments in hamilton but you think that if they were possessed to make this they wouldn't have done it anywhere near the way they actually did it like they have fucking topless men and elderly women grinding on you know on these topless men you, like, you, you just can't fathom why they did it this way do you know what i mean mm-hmm. like it's you, okay, someone has approved this and okayed and given the money towards this massive production of Diana the musical, and then you think, oh, for fuck's sake, I just hope that they can have a modicum of sensitivity. There is no sensitivity in this film. You'd get more sensitivity in an Andrew Tate podcast than you would in this fucking um, musical. It's...
0: Every choice is ridiculous. I mean, the hair that Princess Diana has, it looks like a comedy wig. They look like they've basically mugged Mary Doll from the Rab C Nesbitt stories grabbed her wig and stuffed it on the head of of some poor sod of a of a Broadway actor who's kind of, you know, this is gonna be big, I better be in this. Shit, that's the hair I've got. Do you know what I mean? On the whole thing is bonkers. Honestly, honestly bonkers.
1: I've watched about five minutes of it, and it has emotionally scarred me.
0: <laughs> I watched. I watched it for I watched it all the way to the end. Like so, I say, uh, taking breaks to not look at it directly for too long. You know, like Bird Box, where you blindfold yourself because if you look at it, you might kill yourself. It's the still- <laughs> <laughs> It was like that. I watched it for a bit and then looked away, watched it for a bit, and then looked away. I'm not sure I could I'm not sure I could actually look at the screen directly for the whole
1: yeah, time. Yeah, it, it possesses you, doesn't it? One minute you're sat there watching it and then you just go into a trance and two minutes later you're in the kitchen holding a kitchen knife and you That's have no right, idea yeah, how you yeah, fucking yeah. got there. That's right, yeah. I we I watched it with my fiance, and we watched it for about five minutes and we went, Oh Jesus fucking Christ. And then she just went, How do you think they did the car crash? <laughs> we're not laughing at the car crash, but you're just thinking, how do people without any fucking grace or sensitivity do this? And you go to the end, and it's... I thought they were going to, like... They they didn't actually do the car crash, which is about the only gracious thing they did in this, is that they don't show it, but it...
0: No, the, the car crash is the production of this play on Broadway. That's the fucking car crash. Yeah,
1: but... I'm glad you enjoyed it.
0: Yeah. Um, so, so yeah. So that, that gives you some context into why this quiz is so keenly contested because the forfeits are pretty punishing. Speaking of which, um, what is your forfeit for me if I lose again this time, mate?
1: <gasps> we don't have any recommendations from the people, do we? No,
0: no, no one. I, I think everyone was too shocked by the last one. <laughs>
1: oh, I've got a belt Come on then. Do you remember way back when, back in the day, back in the day day when I went through a little Pokemon phase mm-hmm. and you took me to see the Pokemon movie oh my god but I think it was the second one
0: uh, we went to both the first one and the second one
1: and you fell asleep yeah that'll be my forefoot
0: Pokemon 2
1: yeah I can't I can't find it I'm trying to make sure it's the right one. Yeah, I know which mistaken. one you
0: mean. the The reason that the reason I remember it is, I fell asleep for two minutes, and when I woke up, one of the main characters had disappeared, and no one mentioned them again.
1: <laughs>
0: okay, so Pokemon Two. That's yeah. I, I am quite keen to avoid that, so I will be I will be competing hard in this. My forfeit for you continues to be the one that I've had for you several times, which is uh, Wes Anderson's The Life Aquatic with Steve Sissy. Um, for those of us again who are tuning in for the first time, James is really not a Wes Anderson fan. He really dislikes Wes Anderson, uh, and all the things that he dislikes about Wes Anderson the you know the over overdone quirkiness, the kind of assembly of kind of uh, characters who seem to be just there to put on a funny face, and all of those things are at their absolute max in the Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou, um, with a poorly animated jaguar shark and one character whose only job is to sing David Bowie songs on an acoustic guitar in Spanish and David Bowie and <laughs> so that that is those are the stakes that's what we're fighting for now the other thing to bear in mind um, for uh, the quiz is that uh, we have a uh, a blind ranking so what is the blind ranking that you're going to give me mate
1: I am going to get you to rank directors blindly Okay. I don't know if I've done this one for you before. Uh, No, you haven't. I haven't. No. Right. Okay. (laughs) You ready? Yeah. Clint Eastwood.
0: Of five of the directors you're going to give me. I'm going to say three. Three.
1: Okay. Hmm. Oliver Stone. Four. Okay. Francis Ford Coppola. Two. Okay. Stanley Kubrick.
0: I've only got two left, haven't I? One of them, is Stanley Kubrick. One and 5 you You've got. One and, 1 and one and 5, and five. Uh, you're going to catch me out here I know you are I promise because... I've written these down I promise yeah, I've written yeah. these down yeah yeah um, okay I'm going to put in one because I can't put him below Oliver Stone
1: and your fifth is David Cohen back
0: Okay, so David Cronenberg has to go five, and I would normally put him above Oliver Stone. I would say not the worst outcome. I thought you were going to say like Ridley Scott or something, and I've just put him fifth out of, on that list. But yeah, that's not the. Um...
1: I think that's a good list. I think Oliver Stone has made some mm-hmm. classics that are better than most of David Cronenberg's films, but mm-hmm. hasn't made as many whoppers as Oliver Stone. I don't think that's. Yeah, I think that's a bad list.
0: Okay. Okay, so my blind ranking for you is: I would like you to uh, blind rank these, uh, these, and for, for, for again for those who haven't have paid attention, whoever does the best blind ranking gets a lifeline in the penalty shootout. This is why we're and doing gets this. To go first. And, yeah, so I would like you to blind rank these five films, which are on the list of highest-grossing films of all time. Okay. Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince.
1: Oh, five.
0: Lord of the Rings, Return of the King. Two.
1: Shrek 2. Oh, I fucking love me some Shrek 2, but I'm not going to put it one just in case there's an absolute stinger in there. Let's put it three, safe down the middle. Okay. One four left. Avatar. It's got to go forward. It's not better than Return of the King. It's not better than Shrek 2.
0: Pirates of the Caribbean, Dead Man's Chest is your fifth. Ah,
1: <laughs> Which I believe you have to put at number one. Fuck! Yeah, there you go. You've won the quick toss. <laughs> oh, finally,
0: something goes my way. Not, not, not that we're like really like like super keenly contesting this quiz or anything, but there's a lot it's riding gonna get, on this.
1: Somebody's going to get that competitive that we're going to st- start sending like fucking bags of shit to each other's houses to <laughs> the forfeit. If you lose,
0: we will set fire to something you care about. I will about.
1: happily have a bag of shit sent to my house as opposed to watching The Life Aquatic with Steve <laughs> <laughs> okay Okay. if I lose this, can you send a bag of shit to my house instead of making me watch The Life Aquatic with Steve Zizou? <sighs> Doesn't even have to be your own.
0: Okay, yeah, it's probably easier to arrange something that's not my idea, like, like order you a bag of like natural fertiliser from B&Q or something.
1: Wonderful, thank
0: you. Uh, <laughs> no, no, I'm holding you to the forfeit. I've lost three of these, the things Thanks I've had to right. fucking watch. These
1: questions are about to be fucking stinking, like, can you tell me the gross of Metropolis on the <laughs> Twitter? I'm like, oh yeah, so, no worries.
0: Alright, so I get to answer a question first, um, and I get a lifeline at some point, so ask me my yes. first
1: question, mate. Okay. What is the highest rated film on IMDb's top two hundred and fifty films?
0: The highest rated right now.
1: Mm-hmm. I'm I- not going to use this as your lifeline. I'll give you a clue. It's nine point three out of ten, with two point nearly two point eight million ratings.
0: Okay, I could tell myself in knots on this, and I always assumed that the top-rated film there was Shawshank Redemption. That's what came to mind first. So I'm going to say it's probably shifted and moved and something's gone top of it now, but I'm going to say Shawshank Redemption.
1: It is Shawshank Redemption. 9.3 <sighs> with 2.7. You make me
0: doubt myself there when you think, oh, oh, maybe it's changed. Maybe a lot of films come out that's totally sort of blown the gaff. But nah, No, yeah.
1: nothing really comes close. Yeah. The closest film in the last 15 years is The Dark Knight.
0: Yeah, it's it's funny. It's a a funny thing with Shawshank, isn't it? I I like the Shawshank, and I think it shows up why it's so highly rated, is because no one doesn't like the Shawshank Redemption. And because it's so highly rated, and everyone knows it's the top ranked film, people will watch it and go, Yeah, I also like the Shawshank Redemption, which pushes it all the way to the top. but I'd be amazed if you asked a hundred people what their favourite film was and they said Shawshank Redemption. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. But oh, it is what it is. That's IMDb for you. Uh, okay. So that's one uh, 0 to me. Uh, your first question: Which of the following famous movie mo? Sorry, Which of the following famous movie moments wasn't improvised? So of these three that I'm going to give you. Um, one of these was fully scripted while the other two were kind of made up, improvised and thought up on the day, okay? So you're looking for the one the one that wasn't improvised. You're looking for the one that was totally scripted, okay? Yep. A, Jack Nicholson's line, you can't handle the truth in A Few Good Men. B, Marlon Brando stroking the cat on his lap in the opening scene of The Godfather. C, Jeff Bridges in The Big Lebowski saying, yeah, well... That's just, like, your opinion, man. And those are your three choices.
1: So, I know that the You Can't Handle the Truth is improvised. Um, That's just some knowledge that I have. The other two, I... Was that improvised the Big Lebowski line Which I feel like the most obvious thing when you have a cat in a scene is that you're going to stroke it uh, and I bet the Big Lebowski the entire fucking thing was improvised uh, so it makes me think would you improvise you know, a scene with a cat and you're going to stroke it because naturally that's what the character will be doing. You feel like you wouldn't have to give a director's note or even write that in the script. Oh, man, I don't like that. Unless I'm missing, like, a really famous story about the Godfather. Well, like, maybe a cat wandered in. I feel like that one is so blatantly obvious that you wouldn't think it was improvised, that it was improvised, and I'm going to say the Big Lebowski one wasn't improvised, it was in the script. Is the correct answer. Ooh... So, so I, take it, I take it there was a cat that just wandered in. That's
0: exactly what happened. Yeah. You, as you, you know the story of Jack Nicholson, you can't handle the truth. You know, yeah. the they Jack, Jack Nicholson and Tom Cruise were very keen to like do the scene together and everything. So even even the shots where Tom Cruise is looking at the camera and you know, Jack Nicholson's looking at the camera, oftentimes the, actor won't, the other actor won't even be there. But Jack Nicholson was like, no, no, whenever you're saying something to me on camera, I'll be standing the other side so it feels more real for you. And Tom Cruise wasn't going to not be there when Jack Nicholson's doing his courtroom cross-examination. So they were other sides of the camera at each other, which meant that it got really kind of you know, lively. And um, Jack Nicholson came up with that. The cat was just, they found it on set and Coppola g- grabbed the cat, gave it to Brando and said, hey, this will look good. Sit, sit at your desk and stroke the cat. Whereas, in The Big Lebowski, literally every line of that film is fully scripted. The Cone Brothers are one of those directors who don't like people to improvise, so they, you have to say what's in the script. So, that's that one. Okay, ones each.
1: Ooh, okay, 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 okay. Second question. Apocalypse Now was nominated for... Eight Oscars. Can you tell me the two that it won for?
0: I'm I'm pretty sure it didn't win for any of the acting. I think it won for Best Sound. Correct. The other one that it would have won, I don't think it won anything like Best Script, and I don't think Coppola won Best Director. I think his directing Oscars were elsewhere, so... Um,
1: was this the like best costume design? Is that your answer? Yeah. No, it was cinematography. Ah, oh, fuck! I don't think it was. I should, part. I should
0: have had a, I should have had a bash for cinematography. I knew, I knew, I knew it, it was the technical awards more than anything else.
1: I don't know if it was nominated for. No, it was nominated for best art direction, set direction. Hmm. Okay.
0: Okay, so that's an, that's an X for me.
1: Yeah, I mean, if that was the first question from you, I'm not confident I'm going to get any of an X4, right?
0: So <laughs> I'm <laughs> fighting hard on this one. Um, you might know this one. This is sort of a bit of, you know, from, from Star Wars lore. So, uh, what was Luke Skywalker's surname originally going to be in the Star Wars films?
1: Fucking hell.
0: A, Luke Darklighter. B. Luke Starkiller, or C. Luke Moonrider?
1: Uh, it's Starkiller.
0: You, you're, you're right. Uh, Dark Moonrider, I made up. Darklighter is actually his uh, his friend Biggs's surname.
1: I didn't realise you were going to give me a multiple choice there. I thought I was going to have to draw that from the depth. So,
0: okay. <laughs> okay. So you're you're now ahead, actually, aren't you? Yes.
1: Yes. Good. Okay. Now my third question. Pixar has won several Oscars for Best Animated Film. Can you name me... Just the film, bearing in mind. And... Can you name me four of the films that have won Best Animated Film?
0: Okay, so... And the question is is this the one i use my lifeline on um four name four that have won best so there's a couple of surprising ones Well like shrek one in 2001 so it wouldn't have been whatever they did in 2001. i'm gonna say inside out
1: yes that is one sorry i'm just making sure i've got them all here I'm gonna say up. Yep. Um. Trying
0: to think whether something like Finding Nemo would have won. It. I'm pretty sure Monsters Inc. didn't because that was the year they gave it to Shrek. This is one of the ones where some of the most famous ones surprisingly don't
1: actually win. Um, Ratatouille. That is three can okay. I just give you a clue Toy Story one and Toy Story 2 weren't nominated because the Oscar started in 2001 I don't yeah want to yeah yeah Guesses on no no,
0: no thank you um so I'm now gonna I'm kind of now choosing between finding Nemo and Wally because I know Wally had a lot of love I was finding Nemo with all those ones where they really surprised and didn't give it yeah I'm gonna say
1: Wally that is four the other ones were, uh, so Finding Nemo, The Incredibles, Ratatouille, Wally, Up, Toy Story Three, Brave, Inside Out, Coco, Toy Story Four, mm-hmm. Soul, and yes, that's yeah.
0: Whew, okay, and I and I managed not to use my lifeline, so I'm I'm still in the fight. Okay, this is your third question now, yeah. Yes. Notorious serial killer Ed Gein or Ed Gein, directly inspired three famous horror characters. Name two of them.
1: I've never heard of this prick. Ed, Ge- Jesus Christ. Ed, Ge- I've never heard of this prick. Um.
0: He was like one of the first big serial killers who was known for like killing people and taking trophies. And you know, when they found his house, it was an absolute kind of horror, horror house kind of thing.
1: So I'll write off ones like I'll write off ones like Freddy and Jason and uh, Michael Miles. Um, I can't even think of three out with them now, depending on the timing.
0: Yeah, and this is only fed so that Ed Gein came out it was um, <coughs> caught in the nineteen fifties. So you've got pretty much the whole classic horror era.
1: So I'll go for Norman Bates for Psycho. That that's one. That's like a pretty, pretty obvious that's one. That's one. That's one
0: correct answer. I
1: can't really go for the Zodiac Killer because he was really a real person. Um, other than Norman Bates, the problem is I just want to pick real life serial killers. You know what I mean?
0: Mm-hmm. It's these are definitely fictional characters.
1: I'll go for <coughs> I'll go for seven.
0: No, that's that's, no, that's not correct. The ah. other, the other, the other two are Hannibal Lecter and Leatherface in Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Was Buffalo Bill one of them? Uh, Buffalo Bill sort of, sort of was, sort of wasn't. Um, okay. But it's more Hannibal Lecter because he kept like trophies of his uh, of his victims, okay. which Ed Gein did. He was kind of he was, and he was a cannibal. And obviously Hannibal Lecter was known as the, the cannibalistic serial killer. Okay. Even though he's obviously very different, he's like super intelligent and stuff. But you know.
1: Okay. So that's two each after
0: three. two each actually. after three all level. I might. That my best chance of swinging this is to use my lifeline at the right time.
1: Yeah, you've saved it till now and it's a tie, so it's, it's going quite well for you. Christopher Nolan has been nominated for five Oscars. Can you name me the three films... That he was nominated for, and give me two of the categories that he was uh, nominated in.
0: He personally was nominated, in, yeah. Yes. Okay, so he's definitely nominated for Dunkirk. Yep. The other films in which he would have received a nomination, so he didn't get any for Tenet. Um. So, the, so the choices are Interstellar. Dark Knight Rises I don't think he was nominated for Dark Knight Rises um, personally nominated right I'm going to say Dunkirk The Prestige and Interstellar
1: no ah <sighs> So, Maybe I should have used my knife there. So the categories that he was nominated for or have been nominated for are Best Writing, Screenplay, Director for the Screen Formula, and, 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 and Best Director. Uh, Best Writing, Original Screenplay for Inception. Best Motion Picture of the Year for Inception as a Producer. Ah. Uh, He's only been nominated for Directing for Dunkirk. And Best Motion Picture of the Year for Dunkirk. Ah. Uh, so, so it was so
0: two of the categories I could have said were I, which I was going to say was one was best director one was best screenplay written directly for the screen but I got I got the the films wrong yeah okay well I've got my, I have to use my lifeline on the last one if That's I'm still in it
1: probably best <laughs>
0: um, okay so the, your fourth question now yeah yep which actor from the film The Fellowship of the Ring climbed up to filming location for hours each morning rather than going by helicopter because he was afraid of flying. A. Orlando Bloom B. Viggo Mortensen C. Sean Bean
1: I seem to remember this being Sean Bean, but I also seem to remember this being Viggo Mortensen. I don't know why. I don't know whether I go with my initial gut and just say, it was Sean Bean, or... Yeah, Sean Bean. Don't want to hesitate. Sean Bean
0: is the correct answer. <sighs>
1: Don't okay. know why I had it in my head that. Morton's. so there. you
0: are three-two ahead. I have to get my last one right to draw level, and hope you get your last one wrong. So, my last one with my lifeline
1: to use uh, is now. Okay, the fifth and final question is. The Adventures of Pluto Nash was a terrible film and naturally flopped at the box office. Within five million US dollars how much was the budget for this film?
0: And I'll be using my lifeline here so anything you can give me to help me get near this.
1: Right. How do I give you a clue for this without
0: Yeah, you have to give me a clue without actually giving me the answer, right?
1: Huh. Okay. It's above 80 million and below 120 million. Which is let's just stop for a second there. Fucking mental, by the way. Yeah,
0: yeah,
1: yeah. It's
0: a lot now because the, the thing that the thing that this is, is it was, it's quite a while ago this film came. It's about twenty years ago, isn't it? So it's the kind of, it's the kind of money that was mad money then, rather than the kind of money that's mad money now. This is the bit that I've got to get right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <sighs> I remember it, I, I seem to remember it, it did such tiny, like it did like six million in the box office. It was really poor. So why is six million so bad against the number? So more than, you said it was between 80 and 120. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think they went to like over a hundred. I think I'm, but it was a lot, wasn't it? It was a lot. It's nine. I reckon it starts with a nine. Okay. I'm, gotta get this right or i'm just watching another shit film um
1: 95 million you have saved yourself there it was Oof!
0: jesus thank god for that lifeline okay now you can still take this because you have your final question if you get this right you're free and clear you get this wrong we're in a tie break I wonder if I've made this too easy. What is the only non-Western animated film to win Best Animated Feature at the Oscars? By non-Western, we mean Western Hemisphere, so nothing from the US, UK, or Europe kind of thing.
1: Are you mad? Spit it away. Ah, oh, I've made this too easy. You started with potentially one of the hardest questions I've ever heard. <laughs> Well, not not the hardest, but it was. Yeah, up there. And then the Ed Green you know. question. Oh. once uh, again, you don't have to watch the full thing because you didn't watch the full thing last time because i uh, fell sleep. So yeah, I did
0: actually. I I I was so kind of you know I desperate OCD need for closure. I tried to I I, I watched it back because you had the video to work out what happened to the character that went missing. And I know what happened now. He opened his Pokemon box and like captured him, and then just never mentioned him again.
1: That's
0: good, <laughs> so that's four nil to James. I've fucked it on the last question. I needed to come yes. up with a better final answer. Final question. Um, so well done, James. Well played. You win four nil. You're 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 ahead. Four next,
1: it'll be four one next, pod, because I think that I won't get any of the questions. It. <laughs> <laughs> it's
0: just getting more and more insane. After that, we go for what new films we've watched uh, th- this uh, this month since the last episode. Um, so, what have you been watching, mate?
1: Um, so, I've only really watched one new film completely this month, and that would be Barbie. Mm-hmm. I managed to catch it. I thought it was very good. I thought it was very funny. Um, I didn't think it was worth the hype that everyone was giving it and going absolutely mental- at the cinema for it I thought it was fun I thought it was funny I thought it was daft I thought it made good points and the th- I think the thing I enjoyed most about it is that people like Ben Shapiro were angry at watching a film like this mm-hmm. I find that hilarious because the whole point of the film is is that matriarchy or patriarchy it doesn't work we need to find a balance
0: Yes, yes. I mean, what kind of moron wouldn't agree with that? And I mean it was ben the Giro most doesn't like that. Yeah. So yeah. that's funny as fuck. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Ryan Gosling is an absolute gem. I think he carries the film. He's absolutely hilarious and probably should win best supporting actor. Um, mm-hmm. in my opinion. I think he was Do you think do you think they're
0: gonna girl. they're not gonna put him up for best actor, are they? They're gonna they they're gonna could put him in the category he's got more chance of winning in, right?
1: I think it would be funny if they put Ken in a supporting role.
0: Yeah. Because that's of the kind nomination. of because that's what that's the story of the film, right?
1: I just I thought it was brilliant. I just I was reading up about it and how Greta Gerwig and Margot Robbie had to come up with a system where Margot Robbie could hold the face for so long before she burst out laughing in <laughs> Ryan Gosling's face. Um, yeah,
0: he really think, he really goes for it, doesn't he? Oh,
1: he was he was tremendous. It was funny as fuck seeing Malcolm X playing a Kendall, chi <laughs> playing a Kendall. Yeah, guy, yeah the lead from Blade Runner 2049 playing a Kendall. yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think my, my favourite bit is when they're trying to hatch the plan to get all the Barbies back on their side after being brainwashed by the patriarchy. Spoiler alert. Mm-hmm. And uh, Barbie says, oh, would you, I'll, I'll be your long-term, no, long-distance, casual, non-commitment girlfriend if you still have me. And he goes, just excuse me one second, and he goes into the back through his uh, saloon doors, hides, and goes, SUBLIME! <laughs> He improvised that and I just found uh, funny as fuck. Uh, I,
0: I, like, um, I like the way he just suddenly thought the whole thing was about horses because he watched oh. that video. <laughs> he says, Come inside, I'll play guitar at you for four hours.
1: <laughs> I want to push you around. <laughs> I thought it was brilliant, and then there was just loads of four, fourth wall breaks that were great. The start yeah. mimicking two thousand and one Space mm-hmm. Odyssey. just there's so many good bits. It's very funny. It's very well done. Did Greta you see? Gerwig's did got you got see unbelievable what? Unbelievable talent for comedy. I think it was great.
0: Did you see what I mean? Though no, it felt like Greta Gerwig had a lot of funny things and funny ideas and funny lines that she could have used in a lot of films, but she just realised that this will work really well in Barbie. Do you know what I mean? That whole America Ferrara speech. You know, and and the kind of you know, the, the, and, and where um, where uh, Ken says the, by the time I realised the patriarchy didn't have anything to horses, I I I lost interest. It's kind of like she realised that Barbie was where she could use all those ideas. Do, do you see what I mean?
1: Yeah, it, it, it was just there was loads of funny lines. I enjoyed the line about um, about Zach Snyder. No, oh, that made, I was. I, did I tell you
0: I was the only person in the summary laughed at that line when I was when I was when I was watching yeah. it. I felt really awkward. I thought it
1: was. I thought it was brilliant. Um, yeah. I thought it relied a lot, though, on the writing and the set designs. And mm-hmm. I think after they go to the real world, it does die off a cliff a little bit, mm-hmm. in my opinion. And you know, it it's all it's funny seeing Ken being in the real world for five minutes and being obsessed with the patriarchy and seeing three pictures of Sylvester Stallone and wanting to establish that himself. Mm-hmm. But after that, I kind of felt like the story died a little bit. And then came like...
0: back once they arrived back in Barbie land and, and like restored the... Yeah,
1: with the musical bit at the end. I thought that was brilliant as well. Mm-hmm. But um, I, I, There was loads of funny touches. I enjoyed um, Kate McKinnon's um, weird Barbie. I thought mm-hmm. that was really good. I thought that was funny because I yeah, thought, yeah. were well, they going to bring that up, the whole how everyone destroys their Barbie dolls? Um, yeah,
0: that's the one thing I thought they could have... It's like I said when I, when I watched it. I have very, very few criticism of how well Greta Gober did the film or the acting because I thought it was all excellent. The only criticism I would have is that that bit about how you play with Barbie changes Barbie. I think they that you know because she's like that because she's had a hair you know she's had a hair cut off and she's been dipped in stuff and she's been drawn on, and I thought that was really funny. They could have done more with that, but otherwise, I I don't have a criticism.
1: Yeah, I think. They had a good idea for a story. They just had difficulty trying to kind of flesh it out. Mm-hmm. My my one main criticism is that they made President Barbie more well, bleep out the line, um, "motherfucker." I thought mm-hmm. that would have been funny if they hadn't bleeped that out. I thought that would have been brilliant if they. Yeah, have they'd have
0: lost done. their twelve rating if they'd done that, though. No,
1: nah, you can have one F word, can't you?
0: You can have one F word, but you can't have motherfucker. How? That I I I don't I don't I'm not saying it makes sense. I'm just saying those are the rules. That Fuck that those the are the rules that the, of the film the film censors in fact you can say this. these are the rules of the 12 it's so silly you can you can say fuck as long as you're not actually using it to describe a sexual act so you can say I'm fucking annoyed or I fucked it up or oh fuck but you can't say I want to fuck you to, to maintain the 12 or PG-13 certificate
1: ok Never. but I think Greta Goig was slightly done a belter as we would say in Glasgow, by Lizzo deciding to be an absolute fucking idiot because she features prominently in the first kind of 20 minutes of the film with the And, uh, and
0: then she's turned out to be a bit of an arsehole.
1: Um, but yeah, um, overall good. Other films that I watched and couldn't finish because they're absolutely dog shit. Um, Elemental. Yeah. Have you watched it? Tried to watch it?
0: <sighs> I, <laughs> I was what almost. What was that? I. W- I was sort of tempted to because the the director gave a really good interview where he said this really heartfelt thing about some of his in, in, interest in the characters. But it's like the story just has no hook. It's like
1: It's uh, shit. It's just boring.
0: Every, everyone in this city is like one of four types of of, of thing: fire, water, whatever. It's just it, it doesn't. It just didn't grab me. It's like, mm.
1: yeah, it, it's stupid. It's got no.
0: It strikes me as the sort of thing that Pixar would would not have greenlit. Fifteen years ago, when they were still coming up with good ideas,
1: yeah, terrible. Uh, tried watching the founder came out a few years ago. That's about McDonald's, McDonald's or something, yeah. My my partner used to work for McDonald's. And he said, "Oh yeah, that's really good because she had that kind of interest." Um, and then it, it, it's just kind of boring. You can't make a full story, about it. it's interesting. The first like, if they'd made it like a kind of forty-five minute documentary about how these these two men revolutionised the fast food business, then I'd be all on board, but it was genuinely boring after that. Mm-hmm. Um, it's I funny how there's
0: sort stuff. of more and more films like this now about someone who set up a company or someone who came up with a toy or someone who came up with a training shoe. It seems to be the new thing, right?
1: Well, there's there's plenty of scope for it, but I think it should be done... It didn't need to be like an hour and 45. Mm-hmm. Um, there's plenty of interesting stories. Did you know that the um, the founders of Aldi one of their um, one of the founders, they were two brothers, and they actually split up to form two different Aldi companies. One of them was actually kidnapped and taken hostage and held for ransom. Yeah. And Aldi, being the budget, discount, money saving supermarket, they are he actually managed to negotiate a lower price oh, for his ransom. Oh, that's tremendous! Now that's a fucking good story. Yeah, um, that is. But, but again, do you reckon many people would go and see that? I know Aldi's become a bit of a kind of meme with the their Twitter and they, they call him the Caterpillar, Cuthbert, Spat, but, no, hang on, that's a film, the Cuthbert, Spat, a courtroom drama about <laughs> Caterpillar. Okay, no, so I'm getting distracted, but would, yeah. would people that have worked in retail be the only people, or even people that have worked for Aldi? Do you know, would people actually give a shit if they were, you know... If it was just I, th- I think you, yourself, could, you,
0: you could put you, it in context. I think the, um maybe, who knows? I mean, the fact is that if there's a story there, someone's probably going to make it, with the recent trends in cinema, so we'll find we might find out.
1: I think the beauty of certain things that people are making films about now is that people that work in McDonald's, I imagine, have some brilliant stories. I watched a clip of a guy, his name's Pie Face. You probably never have never heard of him, but he's a YouTuber who he used to be quite a big fat guy and he's lost a bunch of weight. But he used to work in a McDonald's and he tells um, stories and he's told some like brilliant, funny stories about. Um, you know, working the drive through and he was he was taking out the waste oil and trying to put it in the back and he's dropped it and it's gone into the, the river in Plymouth and yeah. you know, a lo- like gallons upon gallons upon gallons have fallen and, and that kind of funny stuff and he was just finishing his shift and he had to clean up all this fucking oil. That's those anecdotes are funny, but they're funny in like a ten to fifteen minute YouTube Not, It clip wouldn't context. it wouldn't
0: stretch to a film.
1: So this one wasn't necessarily me, but I was probably going to try and watch it at some point, was The Little Mermaid live adaptation. No, I've never really given a shit about The Little Mermaid. I think it's a bit of an overrated story. But I thought, man, eh, I quite like the look of the cast. I thought they'd cast people quite well, but my partner, who is a massive Little Mermaid fan, said it was shit. So there we go. For anyone listening that's not seen it yet, that's our contribution clip
0: to- yeah i mean look i think we talked about the disney live action remakes and all the problems that we identified in the other ones apart from the fact, a the remakes have already been done really well b when you try and do it live action or photo realistic you lose some of the the things that they did to make it work like with aladdin like swirling from one animated image that the genies conjured up to the next or in beauty and the beast with like the 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 enchanted uh uh items and they can just they can create a whole kind of magical world and it's all animated and as soon as you make it photorealistic with someone in the picture it's just it's just harder to do it so you know I, the, the video the thing i've seen is like the 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 coloring just looked really gloomy instead of being quite vibrant animation i just think well small kids going to want to watch something that looks like fucking zack snyder's dc universe do you know what i mean but whatever um I know you you said last episode that you'd nearly finished watching the clone Tyrone and that you were going to finish it and tell us what you thought.
1: Yes, so I did. And kind of looking back on it and having time to reflect after finishing it, I don't think it was as good as I thought it was going to be. Mm -hmm. I think it relied quite a lot on the three central characters that Jamie Foxx, John Boyega, and I've forgotten the actress's name. I'll go get her name just to do her justice. But I felt like Tayona Paris. Tayona Paris. I apologize. Um, they were very good, and the script was good. I don't even know if it was script, but more just kind of bouncing off each other and improvisation. Yeah. Um, But yeah, I just. Other than that, I didn't really get on board with the story. I thought it was it was a different kind of film, and maybe I'd watch it again.
0: Yeah, I mean, you, because you said you were watching it and you'd enjoyed it, I, I watched it as well. And, you know, reading the description, that basically it's a black exploitation, they live. I just thought, well, I'm totally here for that, right? Um, the whole thing is totally up my street. And I thought they were, the setup was very clever, like that bit where they're in the chicken shop and everyone just starts laughing. And the yeah. idea that these different characters have got roles that they've been assigned. And a lot of it, I think they did really well because spoiler how do I do this without spoilers some of the characters in here because it's called right it's got cloning in the title right so some of these characters are clones right who've been given a specific role to play yeah which was a very good way of illustrating the certain kind of roles that especially black people are given to play in society and I thought it was also quite clever that some of the characters in the story were not clones but felt similarly confined by their circumstances oh that's really good that um, I thought the setup was excellent. I thought the satire was very clever. I mean, obviously, because I'm a film geek, I love the, the culture references, the pop culture references, where there's a prostitute saying, you're not getting a David Carradine for $50. The best you're going to get is a seasoned Sarandon. It's like, all of that. Love it. When someone's pr- has got to practice, someone's got to say some things, and they're, they're practicing it before they say it because it's all part of a plan to kind of get back at the bad guys. And he said his line, and someone says, "Oh yeah, man, that's Denzel Washington level." And he goes, "Training Day or Book of Eli?" He says Book of I- Eli, and says, "Oh shit, go again." That was like, lo- I loved all of that. When I was sort of watching it and thinking about it, you know, obviously Get Out is still the high water mark for this kind of film, right? The fact that you take a genre film with black characters and it's saying something satirical about the black experience get out to the high watermark it's not fair to compare all of the films to that but it's always in the back of your mind my question for you is going to be on this did they quite land the plane at the end with the, you know did they quite pull it off at the end with the what the obviously when they they clone tyrone they're up to something it's obviously a good hook, but when you find out what's actually going on, did you think that was good enough? Do you think they actually took the idea where they the best place they could have done? Do you know what I mean?
1: Um, yeah, I, th- I sort of felt like the. I thought the it was a bit reveal. of a damp
0: squib myself.
1: So, spoiler: the big reveal is is that there's like a kind of underground organization that's kind of poisoning all the food, mm-hmm. and the consumer products, and it's kind of controlling the community, and the community is like a black community. So it's like they're trying to target, you know, black people. And they're not strictly black people who are targeted by these new drugs, but that's sort of the kind of mm-hmm. gist of it. And eh, it was okay. You kinda you kinda grasped that was going on pretty much as soon as they went to the first underground lab and acts that mm-hmm. Jamie Fox accidentally kills that scientist. I thought, right, I know sort of where this is going. And it did go there. So I don't know if it was necessarily damp because sometimes you can see an ending coming. It's just how they do it. And it was it was all right. That's what I would say.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I thought it was on its way to being really, really good. And when they had the big reveal, which again, I, I I don't think either of us have spoiled. You could watch the film now and not have had the whole plot given away to you from what we've told you up to now. But obviously the people who are doing this are doing it for a, for a reason, right? Their motivation for doing this, they're trying to engineer society a certain way. And I don't the twist that they went for I don't think it quite landed. I mean it's fucking streets ahead from a lot of other Netflix originals, right? It's 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 a good it's good in a lot of ways, and I think it was quite a fun watch. But I put it in that category of one where they've gone. That's a good setup with some good actors and John Boyega, Tayona Paris, and Jamie Foxx. Like you like you say they bounce off each other really well. And in the end, it, it went from really good to just alright by the end. I thought. Yeah, I kind of... In, I mean, I, but I did enjoy it, and I think black exploitation they live. I think is a good indication of the kind of fun you can have watching this film. And yeah, I, 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 am with you, mate. I, 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 in fact, I think I went through the same cycle as you. You must have stopped it at the same point, right? Because after a certain point, I went from this is great to ah, oh, not quite.
1: Yeah, well, I think I went to. Uh... I think I went to walk the dogs and it was like 10 o'clock at night and I thought, mm-hmm. oh, you know what, I'm just going to just gonna go to bed or catch us some other time. And I think yep. I just stopped it maybe at the wrong point. But mm-hmm. there's what it is.
0: Yeah, they, they didn't quite pull it off, but it was a fun idea and far be it from us to be too discouraging towards people who've come up with an interesting idea for a movie. Do you know what I mean? Because yeah. there are so many things that are just the same old shit, recycled, and this was this was a lot more interesting and original than that, even though we've referenced other films in our description of it. Um Anything else, anything else you watch, mate?
1: No, that's, that's me.
0: So other than They Clone Tyrone, which we just talked about, I watched a couple of things. I went to see um, Scrapper, which is an independent British film. It's the feature debut by an English uh, London-born uh, director called Charlotte Regan. She's born and raised on an estate in Islington, so she's got some personal experience of the subject matter she's uh, directing. She's made a bit of a name for herself doing lots of... Um, Uh, music videos for like local music acts near where she where she grew up and this is her first film Um, I don't watch a lot of independent cinema particularly British independent cinema and I think that's partly me I do tend towards kind of genre film you know if it's a heist film or a crime film or sci-fi I do tend to lean towards that And I suppose I've got that same sort of risk averse. I know you're the same, mate. You don't get out to see that many films, right? So you want to make it count. Um, And sometimes you look at the reviews and go, yeah, everybody loves it. But is that one of those indie films that all the critics fawn over, but it turns out to be a bit emperor's new clothes. And maybe I should have said, fuck it and gone to watch it. Do you know what I mean? Don't overthink it. Watch the movie, which is kind of our motto anyway. Um, but it's also an element of it. Can be quite hard to see independent films nowadays because they get a. It's not like before. It's so polarized. The independent films have to survive in a smaller ecosystem, and they can be often just released for a very short time. Then they go to some sort of like video on demand because that's where they make the money. Even quite big films like Wes Anderson, Paul Thomas Anderson, people like that, they basically almost go like, you've made your production budget back in uh, in the cinema. Done. Now we're going to actually make some real money from. Video on demand, people renting and buying the film, like you know, for home viewing. So some of these films you can blink and miss it, but it just so happened that this was on. It got a bit of a a good release in the UK, and there's not a lot of like bigger films on. It's because it's a bit bereft in the um, in the in the sort of mainstream. I just went, well, why don't I go and watch an independent film? Why don't I go and watch a film by somebody new with with a new voice? Like you know, that's what this is meant to be all about. So I did. Uh, and what it's about? It's about a twelve-year-old girl who's, whose whose mum has died. Um, uh, she's di- di- I'm not giving anything on the plot, so that she's she's passed away from cancer, and she has decided that she does not want to be taken into care. Um, so she is fending off the social services who are a bit fucking hapless anyway by pretending to have an uncle. She you know she's she's a, she's a very very bit of a bit of a scammer, right? And she, she gets her local shopkeeper to just say a few key phrases into a tape recorder, and then whenever social services call up because they can't be bothered to come round, um, she just plays these key phrases back to them. It makes it sound like she's living with her uncle, and they leave her alone. Um, she pays the rent by stealing bikes to order, um, and you know, getting money from the person who's going to like repaint them and kind of sell them on. Um, and other than that, she hangs out with her one friend on the estate. Uh, that's her life, and. In coming into that is her her estranged father who it turns out that the, the mother and father were like in their teens when she was born not very well equipped to be parents they broke up and the dad went to work in Spain and he's come back now um, because she's on her own and to try and be a father and try and give her like the stable home life that she needs but he's not exactly an experienced parent in his own right so he's kind of making it up as he goes along as well and you've got these two characters trying to kind of get on with each other. Right. Um and from from the interview with some of the people that are in it, Harris Dickinson plays the dad, and I couldn't understand why that name rang a bell for me. And I thought it was just because those are the principal songwriters in Iron Maiden. But I have seen Harris Dickinson in something else. He was in See How They Run. He's like a young British actor who plays The Dad really well. Um Lola Campbell is plays Georgie, the main girl, in her debut. She's really good. But the intention behind the film is for it to be a bit of an antidote to that traditional British filmmaking about the working class. I'm sure you've seen it, mate. It's that sort of earnest social realism where people from a working class background all live terrible, grinding, horrible lives with no like, joy in them.
1: Like Ken Loach kind of, way.
0: Yeah, although Ken Loach has actually made films that are better than that. But some of his more you know grinding ones, like I, Daniel Blake, are seen as that kind of standard yeah. template. He's done some other stuff like... Um, uh, you know, the angel share and other stuff like that, 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 that are that are intended to be a bit more lively than that. But there's definitely a genre to that. Well, this is directed by someone who's actually, you know, lived this life. So it's not another middle-class filmmaker turning up and invite us all to shed a crocodile tear for the poor people. This is made by someone who grew up in a working class area, um, featuring a fair few actors like Harris Dickinson's from Layton Stone. So he's not some kid from drama school putting on a fake Cockney accent. He, he's, you know, he he's, you know, he's able to, to, to be authentic in the film. Uh, and it's not quite a flight of fancy like Amelie, but it's done in a much more kind of vibrant way. It's got a few kind of funny little inserts where, you know, she's sitting on her own and she like imagines that the spider's got its own kind of inner in, in life and, and, and thoughts of its own. And you see some thought bubbles turn up from the spider commenting on the situation. There are some quite quirky choices in terms of colors and, and things like that. But the thing that makes it kind of different, really, is that you see two kids just playing on the on the the, the, the grass play area around the back of where they live, and it's not a hellhole. It's just where working-class people live. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's not brilliant at night, but when two friends are out playing or going for a little, you know, uh, uh, sort of you know kicking a ball or or hanging out together you go well yeah that's just where working class people live it's not the seventh circle of hell you know it's 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 where ordinary people live ordinary lives and sometimes those people and quite often those people have a laugh and have like thoughts and opinions of their own and are allowed to be different and eccentric and seeing that shown on screen was really quite refreshing and it was well made and because it shows it in that kind of less kind of grinding like aren't poor people unfortunate let's let's give them a pat on the back or a pat on the head kind of thing the fact that it was also talking about grief because this girl's lost her mum right and she's dealing with that and and she's finding that really hard actually under, under underneath it and you're also talking about someone who's 12 years ago when this kid was born wasn't there for her and is now trying to be there for her and he's fucking up because everybody fucks up um there's some some real pain and real you know real grief in it as well um it's genuinely good piece, piece of filmmaking it's only about an hour and a half slightly under an hour and a half long and it's a fairly simple story but it's nice it's it's a well-made film and all the people in it are very good it's quite low-key um but like, like the the listener wrote in these aren't big stories you know in the grand scheme of things but the film's very good at showing there's been quite big stories to the people that are in them these this matters to the people that are in them, and you really care about it it's A good piece of work that I'm glad I went to see, and I really hope that the fact that this has been shown and got some good reviews gives Charlotte Regan the chance to to keep making films, because I think she's genuinely an interesting filmmaking voice. Uh, And, you know, fly the flag for British filmmaking a little bit. So glad I watched it, and a little reminder to me to give more indie films a chance, I think. Good stuff. Um, The other thing I went to see was The Equalizer 3. Okay. Now, I would... ordinarily right I'm not that bothered about going to see like a third sequel to something like The Equalizer much as I like the first Equalizer film but I was you know as I do I think well if I don't go to if I don't go to the cinema I'll have nothing to talk about in the podcast and if I don't go to the cinema I won't go and see films on the big screen like I love to do because I love films and I just realized I hadn't seen that many Denzel Washington films at the cinema I've maybe seen like three of his films at the cinema and all the rest I've seen, like you know, on video or at home viewing, I just thought, come on, he's not going to do many more of these films. He's not going to kick ass on a grand scale that many more times. He's not Tom Cruise. Um, that there was an element of like final part of the trilogy to the marketing of this film, so I just thought, why don't I go and see it? You know, just let let's see Denzel on the big screen. It's been a while, kind of thing. Um, and the Equalizer three is almost like the Equalizers holiday. He goes off to Sicily. Um, he's not there on holiday. He's there to do a particular job. But while he's there, he gets caught up in something. um he, He's, you know, how in the other Equalizer films, there's like one story kind of, you know, generates another. He's there to kind of solve one problem, but while he's there, he gets involved in something else. He gets, he gets shot, um and while he's recuperating, he stays in this lovely Sicilian village and gets to know the people. You know, fall in love with the the place as you probably would, right? Um, but it's that part of Sicily that's not that far from Naples, and they're in the grip of the Camorra, the the, the Neapolitan Mafia. And Denzel decides he's not going to stand for that, and goes and fucks them all up. Um, it's mostly quite routine. I mean, there's the bit, you know, you know, you know, you're going to have the bit where you have the big confront- confrontation, and Denzel says, "Right, I've had enough of you guys," and and starts fucking really cracking heads and wiping people out, right? I was expecting a few more twists and turns before that happened, and it kind of just went all right. And now you're going to have this bit. Give the people what they want. Here you go. Um, prior to that, there's some good character stuff of like Den- you know, you know, Robert McCall's OCD. Um, because Denzel's in it, everyone raises their game. You you said before about Anton fuqua is a bit hit or miss, and that is right. You know, but Denzel likes working with him, and because he's doing a Denzel film, he puts some genuine thought into how he shoots the film. He shoots like a whole action sequence from. Uh, purely Denzel's point of view. That's quite interesting cinematically. Uh, and they obviously put some effort into Denzel's character and you get a reunion with Dakota Fanning from Man on Fire. Um, it was a perfectly fine watch. Um, but like the first um, like Equalizer is a 7, 7.5 out of 10 film, which would have been about 6 out of 10 film if it wasn't Denzel. This is a 6 out of 10 film, which would have been a 5 out of 10 film if it wasn't Denzel. He's elevated it by being in it, and it was fine. I enjoyed it, and I'm glad I got to see him kick some ass again. Um, but it was it was fine. No nothing nothing earth shaking. It's it's pretty standard B movie stuff, but done with better production values because of the star that's in it. But it was fine, perfectly fine. Uh, no complaints. Now, all that leaves us for this edition of Double Real Monthly, which has been a bit of an epic, hasn't it? Yep, yeah, it um, has. Uh, is to talk about um, our resolutions for 2023. Um, now, in our resolutions, uh, I uh, talk about the Cronenberg Institute, where I watch a curated list of David Cronenberg films, um, one a month, and then at the end of the year, I kind of look at what that's told me about David Cronenberg, similar to the other other ones that I've done. But you've got a slightly more random one, mate, called Legal Cage of Consent, uh, in, in which the internet generates a Nick Cage film for you to watch at random. So there you know, you don't get to plan or choose or pick your your Nick Cage films. You get one thrown at you, and you have to watch it and see how you feel about it. What did what got thrown at you this month? Are you ready? I am ready.
1: <sighs> to be fair, it wasn't even a bad one. It was Leaving Las Vegas.
0: <laughs> <laughs> w- worth discussing, right? Because after after all these years, the 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 Nick Cage Oscar film, the one where he wins. You know, best actor and everything else. Um It's I'm I'm genuinely interested in what your thoughts are on this. So,
1: yeah, he was very good. It was a it was a very gritty performance, I thought, and was, I think it's up there. I think it's a discreetly underrated performance. It could be up there, but like the most underrated ever. Mm. I think it's a very good performance about a man's struggle with addiction, Um and yeah, it's a really you know sad and desperate story, and I was impressed. The I think I was more impressed with the fact that it wasn't your typical Nick Cage that we hmm. we know and love. Um and yeah,
0: it, it's it's in that bracket of roles and performances where he he sort of calibrates how much of him he's gonna put in, you know, because this is he takes it seriously because it's serious subject matter, right?
1: Yeah. Um but yeah, um there's not really much else to say. It's a it's a tragic story about a man's struggle with alcohol and Nick Cage it's a it's a beautiful performance, I think. It's it's sad, desperate, and, you know, definitely his his top top performance, I think, by some distance.
0: Yeah, I mean he is really very good in it. And it's weird because Hollywood has this rather mixed relationship with like alcoholism. I mean there are a lot of sort of alcoholics in Hollywood and socially it's the, it's the it's the most acceptable vice isn't it it's like there's this you spend a long period of going ah oh, he was out pissed again oh what a lad and then you find out that they've got a real problem with alcohol and everyone sort of nods and goes oh yes alcohol's a terrible thing and it this film's really unsparing on how on how desperately how desperate a desperate struggle someone has when they're addicted to alcohol right and they really kind of mike Figgis, the director, doesn't pull any punches does he
1: yeah, no, it was, um, I think it was just, I think the thing that took me off guard was the fact that it was a Nick Cage film. Like, you could mm-hmm. have easily seen anyone playing that role. And it was just, it was good to see Nick Cage doing something and rightly so, well, rightly winning his Oscar, sorry. Um, yeah, I was, I was almost excited to see it because everyone had talked talked about how, you know, yeah, Nick Cage, you know, it's, you know, it's his performance, it's his Oscar. Mm-hmm. Um... I think, yeah. people,
0: think people have rewritten history a little bit back over Nick Cage because obviously he, he became known for, you know, there's two kinds of Nick Cage performance, batshit crazy Nick Cage or stoic action hero Nick Cage. And that's not entirely true as evidence. When we watched Pig, we kind of, we watched it because we thought, this is daft. And actually, he was actually a very serious and quite like restrained performance in it. And it, that, that side of Nick Cage isn't a surprise when you've seen Leaving Las Vegas because you're right, he's capable of a very, very serious, solid, no-messing, You know acting performance, Um, and I I think look, he approached it. Everyone involved in this film approaches it very seriously. You know, uh, uh, Elizabeth Shue plays the sex worker who they basically fall in love, don't they? But it it pulls no punches about how horrible her like you know some of her clients can be, um, and how they just need a little bit of solace from the world together. The script was written by a, a Hollywood writer who actually, after this film was finished, drank himself to death. So there's a lot of there's a lot of personal pain in the film and i think nick cage does a lovely job with it doesn't
1: he yeah no i would recommend it to anyone who hasn't seen it it's yeah. um it's very good
0: yeah very good okay that's interesting so you've got that gives you three more nick cage spots and you've had a few sort of you've had a few crazy ones you've had just sort of mad terrible ones but you have had you have had a couple of like uh, strong showings as well haven't you
1: yeah it's been a nice mixed bunch
0: yeah yeah sort of fun fun having the rat the randomizer um it's good to get that Okay. So as I mentioned, my resolution for the year was uh, the Cronenberg Institute. This is my year-long project where we take you to the shadowy uh, the shadowy organization uh, where a, a strange Mr. Cronenberg uh, concocts his uh, disturbing visions to mess with your mind. Um, I've been watching a range of his films and the idea behind it was there were about nine, leaving out a couple of things which just I think don't really fit the rest of his filmography, there were about nine films of his that I hadn't seen, which I'd watched in chronological order uh, and the final three films of the year are going to be his classic ones which I, th- I just wanted to top them off with my favourite or some of my favourite Cronenberg um, movies um, This is the last one of his that I'd not seen before and it's called Maps to the Stars Not sure if you've seen this mate? No, I
1: haven't idea, heard it
0: so this was the first film he did. He did a couple. He did he actually did a Cronenberg film called Cosmopolis, which I did last month while he was still doing the Twilight films. This was the first film that uh, Robert Pattinson did after he was completely done with Twilight. They'd done all the film, films, and it was time for Robert Pattinson to have his post franchise career. You know the way Daniel Radcliffe went off and did a range of other stuff after he was done with um, uh, Harry Potter. Yeah. And he's actually only a supporting role in this film, but David Cronenberg does credit Robert Pattinson agreeing to be in the film with, with um, uh, the project getting financed and actually getting made, because he was a big enough name that said, well, if R. Pats is in it, you can have your money here, go and make the movie. Um, it's actually a more of a star vehicle for um, Julianne Moore, who plays a, a, an aging actress, and uh, Mia wazakowska as uh, a... a, a a woman with uh, injuries and dark secrets from a childhood who comes to Hollywood. And it's kind of an ensemble piece. You know, it's in the same ballpark as uh, Shortcuts, Magnolia, and a little bit of Two Days in the Valley, which we watched for the pod, where you've got interconnecting stories in and around Hollywood. Um, Julianne Moore is a a, a sort of a a washed-up actress, worried about her declining career. She's haunted by visions of her dead mother who abused her um Evan Davis who I've not seen anything else although he looks strangely familiar plays a horrifically unpleasant child actor who is recovering from child addiction and childhood trauma but is such an arsehole it's very hard to like him um Mia Wasikowska plays a, a, a woman who we quite quickly find out I'm not spoiling much of the plot here is his older half-sister uh who has been away in an institution and isn't meant to be hanging out with him but she comes to try and find him in the Hollywood Um, starts talking of family John Cusack and Olivia Williams are the parents of the child actor who are messed up in their own ways Um, Cusack is a quack psychiatrist with his own cash uh, with his own sort of um, TV show and his mum Olivia Williams plays the mum of the child actor who makes a living managing his career they're obviously more interested in milking the cash cow than in their parental responsibilities Uh, Robert Pattinson is a wannabe actor and writer who drives Illinois gets involved with uh, Mia Wesokowska and Carrie Fisher plays herself in a kind of uh, sort of smaller role. And if you've seen any of those films like, you know, Shortcuts or Magnolia or The Player or any, any of these films where you have interconnected stories like Lifting the Lid on Hollywood, it, it, it's kind of familiar to that. What makes it different is that David Cronenberg is much more of an outsider in Hollywood. Yeah. He is um, He is Canadian. He makes most of his films, uh, you know, in Canada you know his films get released in America and he works with American actors but he's definitely not part of the Hollywood establishment in that sense so he just has a he's he's observing these characters just from one one remove it makes his perspective a bit different um obviously his films also because they tend more towards a European audience he he's a lot more kind of frank about sex and violence and and illness and all that sort of thing so while other films have a lot of darkness and trauma, he goes to places no one else does because he's Cronenberg: schizophrenia, incest, hallucinations, obsession, deeply flawed characters. I mean, what, one one bit that I really couldn't—you um, know—you have like Hollywood people not caring about anything but their tiny little world, and you can't, and, and like, like being you know selfish about everything. It's always what? How how does this affect them? But there's one scene in which an actor only gets a part because another actor has suffered a childhood trauma. So, sorry has, has, has suffered a, a family bereavement and they celebrate the bereavement because it's got them the part they've always wanted and you're like oh my god that, honestly I was shocked more shocked as shocked as I've been about like any violence or anything it's just to see an, a, a, a character that happy that someone's died right um and it's just a it's just a scary in a different way because these people are really kind of screwed up um and you, you you can partly sympathize with them because they they're doing this from a place of trauma this you know there's an actor who is you know she was abused by her mother and she now has hallucinations you know where her mother is still dominating her life so you kind of understand why they would be um as damaged as they are but it's still it's still a tough watch um but really compelling i liked it better than cosmopolis i was much more kind of engaged with and gripped by these characters even though i didn't really like any of them um what other Cronenberg films does it remind me of? It reminds me a bit of Dead Ringers. It's not as good as Dead Ringers um, because despite its best efforts, there is it's hard to fully sympathise with the characters, but it, it stands up well, genuinely disturbed and creeped out, and it works towards a really bleak ending. It's one of those bleak endings that you know is coming, but it's still like a gut punch when it happens. Um, the only sort of problem I had with the film is that because, it, because of its low budget... Um, there's there's a couple of bits of poor special effects that that let it down, but let's face it, there's some more expensive films than this have had the same problem with CGI that didn't look right. Do you know what I mean? But uh, otherwise, very very good. And that's sort of me. I've kind of done Cronenberg now. I've actually sort of completed Cronenberg. I've seen all of his films. Um, and I've seen I've now seen all of his films where he's gone off to do like other stuff, his non body horror, non sci fi horror stuff. So that was that was big. Um, I'd recommend this, but it's not an easy watch. Um, as always, inspired by my film from the the project, I always do an impromptu top ten. Um, because this is like an ensemble piece with inter interconnected stories or characters, I've done a, a top ten of similar films where it tells the stories of multiple characters or or, or sort of plot lines that that are all kind of loosely connected. Um, and in no particular order, although the first one is the best, Amicord, Do the Right Thing, Pulp Fiction, Shortcuts, Magnolia, Gomorrah, Amoris Peros, Secrets and Lies, Nashville, Babylon. Uh, loads of examples of this. I've just given you a very brief selection. But I mean, if you like that ensemble thing, this is definitely one for you. Um, and it's not an accident that Robert Altman has to, two films on this list because he was very good at that kind of thing. But, uh, you know, that's the Cronenberg Institute for this month. So next month, we start talking about the uh, familiar Cronenberg classics uh, that I've uh, thrown in to round out the 12, uh, and we will start with his 1986 horror classic, The Fly. But that's the Cronenberg Institute for this month. And unless you've got anything else to add, mate, that's Double Real Monthly for this month. I do not. Well, thank you very much, everyone. We'll, we'll be back with another one of these next time. Um, bit of an epic. And next week, you will have the features. That's all for the latest edition of Double Reel Monthly. Thanks for listening. Thanks also to my co-host, James Adamson. The music was Mistake the Getaway by Kevin MacLeod. Next week, we'll be back with our regular features. First up will be our classics and recommended feature, where we finally get around to watching Andre Tarkovsky's Stalker. Then our hidden gem, where we tell you why you should get around to watching Take Shelter.
1: In The One That Got Away, we'll tell you about David Lynch's Ronnie Rocket. And in the remake, hate watch, we look at the 2007's I Am Legend. We look forward to you joining us then. Look after yourselves in the meantime and see you on the other side.